How was your week this week in terms of your Christian walk? Was it a week you would categorize as successful? Or is it a week that you would say was filled with some level of failure? Failure to do what it is that you know you should have done this past week. See, our text for this morning, God has a message for those of us who are wrestling with failure, who perhaps in this past week or perhaps the past month or even the past year, our Christian lives have not been what it is that they ought to have been. And this morning we want to pause and take a moment to look at this idea of failing Jesus and see ways in which we often do that, but also how Jesus responds to our failures when we let him down, when we don't do what it is that we know we're supposed to do. So if you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of John chapter 18? John chapter 18. It's page number 766. We read this text earlier together. Now, for some of you, you may be thinking, did I miss a few weeks? Like I thought last week we were in John 13. We were indeed in John 13 last week. We've jumped ahead to John 18, and that's because we're following the narrative of the story of John. We want to get to Easter with John in his gospel, and in order to do that, We're following chronologically what he's doing. Chapters 14 through 17 are sort of an aside in which John includes Jesus' teaching to his disciples on that Thursday evening of Holy Week. There's so much important and good material there that we don't want to rush through that. So we're going to set that aside ourselves and come back to it this summer and spend time slowly going through those very important teachings that Jesus leaves his disciples in chapters 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John. But to keep with the narrative, we need to move ahead to John chapter 18. And although we've moved ahead really five chapters from John 13, in the chronology, we've only moved forward a couple of hours. John 18 is that Thursday night of Holy Week the night in which Jesus had washed his disciples' feet, the night in which they shared a last meal together. That same evening, in John 13, Jesus tells us that Judas is going to betray him and that Peter is going to deny him three times before the rooster crows. Well, John 18 is that evening. And then we look in John 18, the main character that is in our text besides Jesus himself is Peter. And in our story, Peter fails Jesus. He fails him twice. And he provides an opportunity for us to see our own potential failures, the ways in which we let down Jesus. And so this morning we want to look at the two ways in which we and Peter 
fail to be the Christians and the followers of Jesus that we know we ought to be. And we want to see Jesus' response to these failures. The first one's found in the story in verses 1 to 11. We read that earlier. We won't read back through it again. But it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus and his disciples went out from that upper room. They go into a garden across the Kidron Valley from the city of Jerusalem. And there they are gathered, and it's dark, it's evening. As we know, Judas has already decided to betray Jesus. So he's left and he's returned with soldiers, officials, uh, people from the religious establishment coming to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Now, for whatever reason, in my mind's eye, I always had this picture of Jesus and his 11 disciples at that point gathered in the garden, praying together and talking together. And a group of maybe seven, eight, ten armed people, representatives of the Jewish leadership, come to arrest Jesus. But John gives us a slightly different picture. He says in verse 3 that a detachment of soldiers has come. And the word he uses here is referring to a Roman cohort. So this is not just Jews that have come, but Roman soldiers as well. Now, a cohort was made up of 600 armed soldiers. Now, you could also use this word if you were talking about a smaller group. There was an attachment of 200 soldiers, which could be called a cohort as well. Or it could be some representative size. But the point is, is that there's a large number of soldiers that are here. Now, if you think, why would they send all of these soldiers just for Jesus? Rome had a habit of wanting to make sure that no riots occurred. And so they went overboard to make sure there was enough force present. If you remember in Acts 23, Rome sends 470 armed soldiers to accompany Paul to his trial because they were afraid of a riot. Well, here some large number of Roman force has come with these Jewish leaders to address, uh, to arrest Jesus. And this sizable presence that represents the world's military might is there in the garden. But in the midst of this, John goes to great pains to show that Jesus is still in control of what's going on. Look in verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Now that probably should not be translated, I am he. It probably should be translated, I am. This is the divine name. This is the Greek words, ego, a me. It can sometimes be translated, I am he. But when Jesus wants to utter the divine name, Yahweh, in Greek, these are the words that he uses. And the reason we think that's the case is, look what happens after he says them. 
When Jesus said, verse 6, I am he, or I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. He simply mentions his name. And all the Roman soldiers and officials and guards who have come, all of them, whether there's 50 or 200 or 600, fall to the ground. And John is at pains to show they think they've come to to arrest merely a human from Nazareth. But it's clear the person they're coming to arrest is God himself. And what do you do when you are in the presence of the deity? You fall to the ground. And so whether they want to or not, when Jesus says, I am, they all fall to the ground. Well, they get back up and Jesus again asks them, who do you want? Jesus of Nazareth. And he again replies, ego a me, I am. And then, verse 8, he commands these soldiers to let his disciples go. Again, John's giving us the impression, Jesus is in control of what's going on. Yes, he's being arrested. Yes, there is a sizable military force in front of him. But Jesus can handle it. This is all happening according to plan. But it's at this moment that Peter enters into the story. And he grabs his sword, and he takes a shot at one of the high priest's servants, cutting off his ear. Now, this reminds us that Peter is obviously not a warrior, because cutting off a man's ear is no way to actually kill him. (laughs) Perhaps he was going for the head and just sort of missed slightly. But the idea is is that he's going to fight for Jesus. And we might think, okay, fine, he's not a great soldier. And there's lots of Roman guards here, and they're going to kill him. But at least we ought to give him some points for bravery. But that's not what Jesus does. Verse 11, Jesus commands Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? And here's where we see Peter's first failure and his first mistake. It's that he fights when he should have been still. Jesus is saying, look, I'm in control of what's going on here. God the Father has planned this all out. This is not the way with your sword that God's will is going to be accomplished. Jesus had not asked Peter to fight for him in this way. Jesus had not commanded him to do this. Peter takes it upon himself, and his first failure is that he fights when he should have been still, when he should have been trusting that God had everything under control. Peter tries to bring it under control himself, and this is not a failure that Peter alone does. We do this too, don't we? For example, imagine that you're a high school student. And some of your classmates have taken to making fun of you for going to church, for being involved in Bible study and Christian things, and they've begun to perhaps even make fun of the idea of believing in Jesus. And you're sorely tempted to return insults, their insults, with some of your own, and to remind them only a fool thinks there's no God. 
And someday you're going to find out just how wrong you are. But that would be Peter drawing his sword and fighting fire with fire. Jesus is not interested in being defended that way. A better choice would be still and to trust that God is in control and that through those persecutions and those insults, He's going to work out His own plans. Or imagine that you are a mom of elementary school kids. And for years, there's been a policy in the elementary, public elementary school where your kids go that at Christmas time, a parent can come in and read the Bible story if their child chooses to invite them. The teacher can't do it, but the parents could. And this year, a very vocal minority in your child's class has made so much noise that they decided to scrap that policy and to say, no more Bible stories, even if children request them at Christmas time. And you think to yourself, I'm going to get the vocal majority together, and we're going to sign petitions, and we're going to force the school board to reverse this and to go back to the way the policy used to be. I'm going to stand up and fight. The problem is that's Peter drawing his sword. It's fighting the world using the world's system. And Jesus says there are times to be still and to trust that God has things under control. Or imagine that at work, you and another of your coworkers are both up for a big promotion and your other coworker has taken this opportunity to secretly and silently or behind your back spread false rumors about you and begin to try to curry favor with the people who will be making the decision about the promotion and is going to great lengths to campaign to try to get the job. And your friends at work are telling you, look, you need to do the same thing. You need to tell some of those stories about what a bad coworker he is, about how he's failed on this project or how he didn't do that. You need to go out to lunch with the boss. You need to make some of this stuff happen. But that's Peter drawing his sword, fighting when he should be still. See, we are tempted to use the weapons of the world, whether money or power or politics or marketing or influence, to do things. And God is saying to us through Peter's example, there is a time in which in the face of suffering and persecution, we must simply be still and trust that God has it under control. But we make the same mistake that Peter made. And we fight when it is that we should be still. Now you listen and you say, well, what are we supposed to do when faced with God's enemies? Is there nothing that we should do in light of the fact that people in this world are antagonistic towards Christ? Well, there is something we're supposed to do. But this leads us into Peter's and ours second failure. And it's the story that takes place from verses 12 to 27. And in this story, John is drawing for us two scenes at the same time. And he alternates back and forth in verses 12 through 27 between these two scenes. 
in one scene, Jesus is in on trial before Caiaphas the high priest. In the other scene, Peter is outside Caiaphas's house in the courtyard having an interaction with those who are present. And John is flipping back and forth between these two scenes because they're happening at the same time. Peter, according to John chapter 18, verse 17, is approached by a servant girl out in the courtyard of Caiaphas's house after Jesus has been arrested and taken there. And she says to him, are you not one of his disciples? Peter replies, I am not. Now immediately, the scene switches to inside Caiaphas's house where the trial is going on. And Caiaphas is having a conversation and Jesus is being interrogated. And Jesus says, verse 21, why are you questioning me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Jesus is tying his testimony of who he is to his disciples. And they're testifying about him. Jesus has put his message and the reality of who he is into the hands of his disciples. They'll tell you. I've taught them everything. Go ask them. They'll let you know who I am and what I teach. Of course, at the moment he's saying that, back in the courtyard, Peter's being asked again, are you one of this man's disciples? And the person you would most expect to be able to testify as to who Jesus is and to what he's taught, the person that Jesus would be bragging about saying, ask my disciples, they'll tell you. It's happening at that moment. And how does Peter respond? I'm not. I'm not one of his disciples. Now the wording is very interesting. If you remember in the garden, twice Jesus was asked, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And his response was, in Greek, ego eimi, I am. Twice Peter is asked, are you one of Jesus' disciples? And twice, Peter responds in Greek, Uk me. I am not. Twice Jesus says, I am. And twice Peter denies him and says, I am not. Now it happens a third time in verse 26. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I just see you? In the olive grove? Didn't, weren't you the guy that pulled out the sword and cut my cousin's ear? I was there. Surely you're one of this guy's disciples. And all John tells us is, is again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. 
And here is Peter's second failure. The first is that he fought when he was supposed to be still. The second is that he's silent when he's supposed to be testifying. And John has drawn these two failures together because there's one person who was both in the garden and in the courtyard who saw Peter in both places. He says, you were the guy that was fighting so hard just a few minutes ago. And now you're saying you don't know who he is? But we're like that too, aren't we? If there's time to sign a petition and to force the school board to do things the way we want to do it, we'll sign our name. If we're going to fight with a coworker to try to curry favor to get the promotion, we're willing to engage in that sort of thing. If we're in the high school and kids are making fun of us, we're willing to return insult for insult. But when it's time for us to share the gospel, to speak to a school board member or a coworker or a fellow student, suddenly our bravery melts away and we're completely silent. The other day I was dropping one of my kids off for school and I have a list of three people that I've been praying for just like you. And one of the names on the list has been someone that I have become rather frustrated with God about because I'm praying every day and nothing seems to happen. And so I keep praying for him because I agreed I was going to do it for the year. But in reality, I just sort of mention his name and get on to the others on the list for whom God seems to be doing more in their life. And that's where my passion really is. And I keep praying for this other person. Well, that morning, I had finished praying for these three people that I really want to see come to know Jesus, including the one for whom I've not held out much hope. And I go to drop my child off for school when who should come walking up to me but this guy? And he starts a conversation with me about Jesus. You haven't heard the rest of the story yet. <laughs> and you know what I did? Not much. I engaged with him a little bit about Jesus. And then I changed the subject. How bad is that? I've been angry at God for this time, saying, why don't you open up any doors? He opens up a door, and I slammed it shut. I could have kicked myself. Of course, I didn't really want to kick myself until hours later when I realized just how badly I played that. We do that, don't we? When it's time to fight, we're ready to fight. When it's time to testify, we're silent. You see, it's not that there's no weapon that we should be using in the battle we're engaged in. In the garden, two kinds of weapons are on display. One weak and one powerful. The weak one, the swords. The Roman soldiers have them, and Peter's got one. Peter's doesn't do a whole lot of damage. The powerful weapon is the one that comes out of Jesus' mouth. The one that in a single name 
can floor the mightiest army on earth that's come to attack him. Just the mention of his name and everybody goes down. See, the more powerful weapon is the word of God. It's the declaration that Jesus is Yahweh, that he is Lord. And when Jesus says, I am, everybody falls to the ground. See, it's not that we're not engaged in a battle. It's that the weapons of this world, politics, money, influence, fame, power, they're useless in the battle. Where God wants us is with the gospel, testifying that Jesus is Lord. But you and I, we're just like Peter. We fight when we should be still, and we're silent when we should be testifying. So what do we do in light of the fact that Peter's failures are in many ways our failures? How does Jesus respond to disciples like us? People like Peter and like you and I, who Jesus has entrusted the testimony of who he is to. And we stay silent, choosing instead to get involved in petty skirmishes using weapons that Jesus wants no part of. Well, let's look at his response. In order to find it, you have to turn over to John chapter 21 because Peter and Jesus are not going to have another moment alone together until John 21, until after the crucifixion, until after the resurrection. And in John chapter 21, verse 15, this is the first chance that Peter and Jesus have to themselves. It says, when they've finished eating, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The reason Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Is because Peter had denied Jesus three times. Jesus is here restoring Peter. He's not ignoring his failures. He's well aware that Peter denied him three times. And the next time they get together, Jesus gives him a chance to be embraced despite his failures. Because at the end of the day, the good news about Jesus is not that we're such great Christians. It's not that we're such amazing followers. It's that we serve a God who's full of grace and mercy. It doesn't excuse our failures. 
But if we're honest, we are failures. There are ways in which we let Jesus down. We fight when we should be still and we are silent when we should testify. But in God's grace and mercy, he embraces us just like he embraced Peter. He doesn't ignore it. He forgives it. And he welcomes Peter back in. And how do we know that he has forgiven him? Because he recommissions Peter to go out and do better next time. In fact, from this moment on, through the book of Acts, we are going to see Peter testifying and refusing to be silent. And Jesus alludes in our passage in John 21 to a future event in Peter's life where he is going to be taken by force to be killed, and that time Peter will not fight. He will be still and entrust himself to the one who is in control of all things. So if you're here this morning and this week, perhaps you've been a failure. Perhaps you've not walked in the ways of the Christian faith as you ought to walk. What I have to say to you is, welcome to the club. It doesn't excuse it. My failures with the person that I told you the story, your failures, whatever they were, it doesn't excuse them. But at the end of the day, we serve a master of unworthy disciples. That's who Jesus is. That in his grace and his mercy, he embraces us and commissions us to go out and to do better. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're sorry for the ways in which we have let you down. It's true that ours look somewhat different than Peter's. But in reality, they're often the same. We're out fighting when you want us to be still and trust in you. And we're silent when we should be testifying. I'm sorry, Lord, for the ways in which I have failed to testify as to who you are. I know there are others here who have experienced that same failure. But thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you did not lord it over Peter's head or beat him into the ground, but instead you embraced him. And we know that your response to Peter is your response to us. And so I pray for any here this morning who perhaps have been feeling their failure in following you, would you embrace them? And would you, in your grace and mercy, restore them to service in your kingdom? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.